Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I like that feeling because so much of game design is curating a feeling, right? Of like Monopoly is about holding a bunch of cash money in your hand. Uh, so the idea here that you're... My name is Jeremy Gage and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. 
Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, the show is never about me. It is about who I have brought to you today. And who I have brought to you today is a return uh, guest. One of a couple you'll hear throughout this next year of podcast episodes. But um, returning from their inspiration they gave me for Necronautilus, you know them. You love them as world champ, game co inspires so much amazing psychedelic rock and music inspirations and as an amazing graphic designer i would like to welcome to the show again adam vass thank you that was a great intro i feel really good (laughs) (laughs) yay i'm glad we need it today adam in case this is uh in case they haven't heard the last episode would you just give a brief introduction of who you are in the ttrpg space and maybe even something outside of that if you want and any links or resources people could use to get uh in touch with you and involved in your stuff sure i'm adam vass i use he they pronouns and i publish tabletop games as world champ game co since 2016 my website where you can get all of my games is worldchamp.io and i'm also on itch at worldchampgameco.itch.io and as jeremy lovingly mentioned i do graphic design i do game design i co-host the brain trust game design podcast with will yobst and outside of games i am a professional musician although because of quarantine i am a full-time game designer (laughs) So yeah, I I kind of translated a lot of that like merch production and weird emo, hardcore DIY ethic into my game publishing and design. And I think as a result, I have a really unique, weird perspective that hopefully offers people something new and weird and cool to check out in games and maybe in other aspects of their life and art and other stuff that they're into. I I love it. And it's, it's true. You have certainly, as far as my perspective is concerned, all the works that you've been producing feel very, both you and will provide a, a very interesting, like, especially on the graphic end of the products you produce and the games you make just different. It feels, it feels like in the sort of like Morkborg category of different, like different, like this is really a, inspiring and i don't like know what's going on here like like it's that you're looking at a painting but you don't have the words for what's going on you're like this is just good i can't tell you why (laughs) you know so it's it's very cool to see the stuff you produce thank you yeah i think there is that sort of immediate rejection on my part of more traditional fantasy visuals you Mm -hmm. know the like fake stained paper layout and that was never for me so once i got into this scene i i brought all my cultural media baggage with me in a good way i love it and usually at at this next section of the show we sort of talk about your you know rpg lineage and stuff like that but we did that in the first episode which is the hook for hey go listen to adam's first episode but i think what i want to do here is just sort of like a recap since then, like the 
like how has the present game designer slash player journey been for you in the last year? Um, how how has it gone since Necronautilus? You've become a full time game designer due to quarantine. You haven't been able to embellish in your musical pursuits as, or at least performance pursuits. Excuse me, you can do music right. wherever, but performance pursuits as. Uh, is tradition for you. How has it been going? How's the year gone? Uh, it's definitely still an adjustment period. Last time we spoke, Necronautilus had been published and Babes in the Wood was was funding. Since then, Babes has been released and that was like a huge boon for me last year. Especially the Kickstarter did okay without necessarily blowing the doors off, but that was a project that did better in post, did better as it was more widely available and because it's a game that's built around like autumnal themes and Halloween aesthetics just picks up in September and October every year and mm-hmm. brings a lot of joy in that season. In addition to that, Will and I designed Campfire, the horror anthology s- storytelling game. And that was another one where we did it in the spring and it shipped in the fall and is like a cool storytelling system for people to make their own short horror stories like Tales from the Crypt or Are You Afraid of the Dark? And in the middle there, I also moved across the country. I moved from California back to Michigan, had a long personal saga of adjusting to that and finding my footing and just getting back to some sense of normalcy and and comfort. Um, which led to me designing quite a bit less, or I I definitely designed a handful of more introspective or emotional games that I did through my Patreon Mm -hmm. games like diagnostics, which is like a tarot card reading using the cards from your wallet. So your driver's license, your credit card, your insurance card, what they mean to you and how they work in this spread. I published a zine called no game, which was sort of prosy examination of what it feels like for me to make a game and where those thoughts and ideas kind of come from. So on the whole, the the year really led me to consider myself in a different way and like e- examine and question some aspects of myself and then translating that into game design or like game friendly poetry or free writing and that kind of stuff, which was really therapeutic in a way for me. And now I'm sort of found center and working full-time on bigger games. As I'm sure we're about to talk about cyber metal 2012 is my big, big project that's back in the, in the queue and currently crowdfunding at pentagram.city. For your sort of journey as related to game design or game exploration, or even, you know, creative exploration, what what would you say is like something that you potentially learned about yourself over this last year as it relates to being a game designer? I don't want to like I'm specif- uh, specifying it that way because I don't want to poke at anything that is of of personal matter to you. Sure. So I don't want you to be like, what was a personal life lesson you learned? Right. Uh, so was there anything that sort of like appeared as a boon for you over the last year and really kind of changed your scope of creation? Yeah. I mean, I think specifically with diagnostics and no game, they taught me that I can make, I can still make projects that are arguably self-indulgent that are like Mm -hmm. really for me. And I just happen to print some and people 
care and find some connectivity in there. And Mm -hmm. that's really valuable because I think we often get into the woods with, uh, the fact that game design is both an art and a product. And Mm -hmm. those to me were more heavily just art and not products, but I also sold them. And that was really good for me because I think after Necronautilus and Babes in the Wood, I was looking for or trying to come up with something that could sustain me financially longer mm-hmm. and those projects. And then I also, I did uh, ether operations during last year's zine mm-hmm. quest, which was also a, a extremely self-indulgent weirdo art project. Um, doing projects like that kind of liberate me from that sense of obligation to a marketing demographic or an audience in that way. And I can just let my freak flag fly. And <laughs> sometimes people still think that's cool. And especially, you know, I've th- those games, those emotional things generally sell less or are less popular, but the people who respond to them tend to do so in a, in a really like profound way to me. And I get a lot mm-hmm. more feedback in that way of like this game meant something to me or just, you know, playing it or reading it or whatever impacted someone in a emotional and hopefully positive way. And that's such a, rewarding thing so the thing yeah the thing i learned to some hate that ramble is that i can still make things that are personal to me and important to me without necessarily conceding to the idea of marketability and Mm -hmm. by being true to myself and being you know the artist that i want to be i still have people who will support and connect with those things yeah, there it's so interesting too because even even though they have been projects of personal thought or emotional exploration on your behalf and you've produced them publicly and what I think is even though it wasn't sort of a product though you did earn money for them. Right. Uh I also there's this uh, kind of trite slogan that always sticks with me from marketing books I used to read. And it's always like, you only really need a hundred true fans. And like, I forget the person who, who said that, but the idea is that like, if you get a hundred people who will be willing to spend like a hundred dollars a month on your stuff, then you're set for life. Like if you, the people who just like love who you are and what you do or what you're producing and no questions asked will like, consume your consume your whatever it is and the reason i bring that up is i think what's nice about those projects is that for the people who are really interested in you know adam vass not necessarily uh world champ game co those people get access to you in like a vulnerable and personable way that resonates with them and just strengthens their connection to you. And I think what I take away from what you sort of just exposed is it's it's okay to engage on the on that level because those connections are gonna last you a long time. Like they'll go beyond dollars in some ways too. It'll be, you know, I'm down on my luck today. 
I need to learn this thing. I need to connect with someone about this thing. Like you've potentially formed new relationships or new friendships with people. You also get an opportunity to like learn about your audience and the things they resonate with beyond like, how do they resonate monetarily? They can also resonate in ways that, you know, just connect you as human beings, which I think is really cool. And I think it's important to recognize that there is a double-edged sword of when you put yourself out there personally and expose yourself vulnerably, the internet can be a dangerous place for that. But it's also uh, a beautiful place for that because you don't know who you're potentially helping. It's just unfortunate that the positive versions of that are a little bit more scarce than uh, the anonymity, right? Is that how you say that? Anonymity of the the massive internet blob person. Right. Persons. I think my one of my first nuggets of advice I'll drop on the show today, and this is something that Will, Will Yobes taught me as well, is I keep a folder on my computer desktop that's just called compliments. And Aww. so when I get that positive feedback, whether it's a tweet or uh, comments on itch or on Patreon or whatever, I'll screenshot it and I'll drop that image in my compliments folder. And then when you have somebody who like leaves negative feedback or you're just having a time, like you can open up that folder and like be reminded actively of those connections that you made and those ways that you impacted someone. And generally my compliment folder is more like we were talking about things that are more emotionally charged than you know someone saying like i really dig this dice mechanic or something might might not end up in the compliment folder but that distinction between who i am as a person and who i am as a game designer i i tend to do more more personable compliments go in the folder but like it's such a powerful tool and also like you said those those negative things are generally more common or you know like people don't often think to just say something nice in, Mm -hmm. in their everyday life or especially on the internet. So it does hit harder when it, when someone does say something really impassioned and, Mm -hmm. but you want to, because those platforms like Twitter are fleeting, you know, like a mention is going to go away in a day you want to save them. So the compliment folder does wonders for the, the times when you start to doubt yourself, but also when you just, you know, want like a digital hug i guess i love it i just made a folder so yes <laughs> i just made a come i advise everyone along with adam to make a compliments folder. that sounds beautiful and useful to remind you that people have said nice things about you so your worth isn't all defined by negative commentary or red frogs that's a deep cut <laughs> um so Let's with that. Let's sort of like transition into the the little game bits about the show and what you're doing here. Firstly, with Y2K, and then we'll follow up with Cyber Metal. So for the listeners, I've had the ability to read Y2K. I've not had the ability to read Cyber Metal 2012 yet. But would you, Adam, first talk about like what is Y2K? Yeah, it's difficult to talk about them as separate entities, but I'll do my best. Sure, sure. So so Y2K is a role-playing game for one player and one game master that takes place in an alternate history year 2000 where the player is a human citizen of Pentagram City and you are doing this little hex crawl to vanquish 
the bug, which is the sort of physical manifestation of the Y2K computer bug. And it is infecting people in your town with programming or like antagonistic software through the port that everyone has in the back of their head called the NeuroNexus that allows you to like install software into your brain um, in, in the sort of way like Matrix in the Matrix where Neo learns Kung Fu. They just download mm-hmm. it. But because this is what I call click wheel cyberpunk, a sort of retro future, low tech cyberpunk, there's only enough storage for one piece of software at a time. So in this in Y2K, it's effectively your subclass. You only have one option and you can't change it. But Y2K functionally is a prequel and preview of both the art and layout and game design mechanics of the greater project, which is Cyber Metal 2012, which is a much more dynamic role-playing game set 12 years later. And again, in this alternate history that starts back in the 80s. So you have a lot of hell and in weird heavy metal infused stuff in the setting. Obviously the setting being Pentagram City is evocative of this sort of 80s vision of the satanic panic and heavy metal and how that grows through time in this alternate history with where where metal music is like the cultural thing and also the literal gates of hell have opened so demons like walk among you and hell radiation turns all the bottom feeder creatures like rats and roaches and stuff into sentient beings as well and it's a very gonzo weird setting but y2k gives you a glimpse at it and cyber metal allows you to fully indulge in it Mm -hmm. and what's really interesting is this is like i recently had listened to a podcast called what would the smart party do it's kind of like a, a couple of guys that focus mainly on sort of skirmish adventure rpgs like tra- traditional fantasy adventure rpgs and they had an episode a couple episodes about starter sets and quick starts and what i really find interesting about what y2k is doing is like a on, it's like an onboarding game to a greater game, which is really fascinating. I think you, I think you mentioned that it's a prequel game, yeah, uh, in the text. And I've also seen like some chatter of people in the Brain Trust and on Twitter also kind of mention when you did the Y two K release, talk about like this being a prequel game, and that like genre of creation is really interesting when you think about how to as an indie designer, get someone into like a greater project. So we talk about marketing tactics all the time of like, Ooh, give them like a free little game as a part of a newsletter. Gem Room Games does this with their website. You get one of, you get Neutron X, which is just the taste of the sort of games they create. What I like about the specificity of Y2K into cyber metal is the onboarding of like, Hey, if you really enjoyed some of like the bare bones tech and you are like vibing with the setting right now. Just wait, because I'm about to go full ape shit on Cyber <laughs> Metal and you're gonna love it. So is that sort of the intent? Did, did Were you saying to yourself that Cyber Metal needs something like this? Was this your like sort of 
attempt at a quick start and revamping or re-manipulating it to sort of feel like something else? What was the, why the two games and how did you get to one leading to the other? Totally. That's my take on a quick starter. Again, a lot of the games that I publish, I think my game design journey really started with like, this is novel, but what if I liked it? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I've not, I've never been a fantasy head, but I still started with Dungeons and Dragons cause it's so ubiquitous. So mm-hmm. immediately I go, this is interesting, but what if I actually liked it? Like, what if this was in a weird world mm-hmm. that didn't have elves and goblins and stuff? So quick start is the thing here that I don't really like or engage with, but I wanted mm-hmm. to confront and reinterpret so Mm -hmm. this is both a functional preview of cyber metal because cyber metals crowdfunding and people the the pitch is good the pitch is cool (laughs) as hell but Mm -hmm. some people want more gamey aspects to know what they're getting and Mm -hmm. cyber metal has what i would consider too too much going on to offer an effective quick start without just giving you the game, Mm -hmm. which is obviously not a problem. Plenty of people give away the game, but I want to continue to develop it and make it big and weird. And I keep finding new things to be inspired by in the setting Mm -hmm. and in that mechanical fiction. So Y2K as a standalone allows me to continue developing cyber metal and seeing the things that I do and don't like about it in action without necessarily having to change it. Because mm-hmm. the core mechanic of roll D100 under your stat and then use the two 10-sided dice from that roll to determine what happens next. That is also the core mechanic of Y2K. But I needed to trim a lot of the character options. I needed to trim a lot of the like faction kind of like setting stuff. Also, uh, Y2K takes place in Pentagram City, which is the same setting, but it specifically only occurs in what's called the Wired District, which is like a part of the city that they built up during the 90s in anticipation to be like a tech stronghold as the mm-hmm. sort of city planning ideal for the future to prepare for like a digital age that doesn't quite appear in the way that they hoped. So it allows me to give more of a bullet point introduction to both the mechanics and setting while almost keeping it in isolation from the real project in case the real project wants to change more. And in addition to that, both of these games are the first endeavors into this idea that I had called the death agent role-playing timeline series. The acronym is darts, Mm -hmm. but the idea that because this alternate history starts in the early mid eighties and we're playing a game in 2012, that's, you know, a 30 year span in which history is different and stories could be told. So I want to continue developing unique games within that last year on Spencer Campbell's Twitch channel, sort of live designing with him a Lumen, a powered by Lumen game called hell war 1991. That is this setting in 1991 when 
the forces of hell were like invading the earth and we have like ground combat and that was really fun and exciting, but that's, you know, one story or, you know, a handful of stories in a particular era along a 30 plus year timeline. And I really love the idea that these games can be tied together. They, they are tied together in, in so far as they're using the same setting and history, but the idea that a player group could play a game where your characters are kids in the 1980s and then they're young adults in the hell war and then they're adults in the year 2000 in Y2K and then they're kind of weathered, broken down people in Cyber Metal 2012. And whether they're your active player characters or whether they're NPCs that you get to sort of flesh out these storylines of your own and make Pentagram City your own sort of thing is so compelling to me while at the same time, none of these games require that you do that. So Y2K was my first dipping my toes into because cyber metal was the game that I started designing the timeline for. And then in doing so realizing there's so many instances I want to look at thinking of timeline as a game of microscope, right? And you want to keep looking at these moments that are important. So Y2K is a glimpse at an important historical pivot along this timeline while also mostly functioning to entice you to the world of cyber metal 2012. There's uh, there's two really big things here that I've been talking about a lot off of podcasts for a while now. The first one is why I brought up the smart potty, a uh, smart potty, haha, <laughs> smart parties episode of the quick starts. In that episode, they again they focus primarily on trad fantasy adventure games, and I think you're starting to do the thing that they're talking about in that they believe that quick starts are starting to like see a different energy on the indie scene. This episode came out maybe two two or three months ago but i just listened to like two weeks ago and they were talking about how a lot of quick starts are either half or all of the core rules for like character creation and making your own dungeons and creating your own monsters and they're kind of talking about how like that's not really a quick start that's the game exactly and you still need to do like preparatory work where like they foresee a quick start being like here's some pre-generated characters here's the scenario here's the base mechanics to operate everything go like get involved in the game as soon as possible because that will help you decide like it's both powerful for if you're if a table wants to try something new for the first time but it's also powerful for them to get a taste of something bigger right like you know the quick start helps them get their first adventure like wow i would really like to see where these characters go can we get more like yeah I, you know i don't really have the brain right now to parse how to make a monster let me get let's get the core rule book or whatever or the other option is like i really like that but i would love to do my own character i wish we had some character creation rules cool core rule book right but they only loved it because they got to engage with it and as soon as possible and quickly as well like they got to parse through a whole style of play before they asked like, Oh, could we do more? Right. They got to eat before they said, we'll come back to the restaurant again, which was, which is really cool. And Y2K is definitely doing that. And the second thing 
that is huge is sort of your legacy concept of like generate like generational play, but having games that engage in that, as you said, pivot moment directly and a cut like uh, a couple of, I think Vaditya Valetti has sort of a concept going on where you play like, I'm going to, I always met Lady Blue, uh, Bluebird into, or no, is it the King is dead, Lady Bluebird, something and then for the queen like you parse those four games and you can sort of like make a cyclical generational game out of that because at the end of like for the queen the king dies and then you go back into the king is dead so you can keep playing like characters through those series of games and so i love your thought process of looking at a setting and looking at the fiction of it and saying like this 30-year span, or if, even if it grows into more, is really interesting. And there are, like, really cool, crucial moments that elicit different genres, right? Like, war against the demons, engaging with the change of uh, technology, like a pivot moment of industrialization or whatever that looks like, retro retro tech, and then engaging in cyber, cyber metal 2012, like the full realization of that Y2K moment later. So those two big ideas are really huge for what I'm thinking about for my own personal game design. And I, I love it. I think you're hitting on, and you, I, I have to ask, have you ever listened to what does the smart party do? Uh, no, I never heard of it before. Great. Perfect. The, the reason I just asked that is because you're doing like, you're doing the, the quick start thing that even I agree. I think quick start should be a quick start, not half the game, like half the creation right. preparatory rules. Yeah, I wanted to include character creation in Y2K to make it still feel custom because I think yes, that's such yeah, a novel yeah. part of play is making things your own. But mm-hmm. it, you you are only human versus Cyber Metal, which has four different hardware options. And then we're going to, I'm going to do stretch goals, I think announce them probably today or tomorrow mm-hmm. to increase that to eight hardware options. Oh. And then again, you have, you know, in, in Y2K, you pick one software and you can't change it. And then in Cyber Metal, you have 32 software options that you can change anytime you log into a computer. So I wanted to, yeah, you, you to customize it and get a glimpse at how some of these mechanics work and how they encourage a certain style of play without needing, without bogging you down with all the options. But also, mm-hmm. like you said, without just giving away all of it because it keeps growing it's and i think that's the other thing with the timeline is as i continue to explore it in game design and in research and in just like thinking about it it continues to present me with interesting choices and i've been working on cyber metal for about a year which is longer than i tend to work on stuff truthfully because i get really excited i go head first and i make a book this has been more of a slow burn evolving process because the game keeps telling me it wants to do certain things and then I continue to accommodate it. And part of that is setting and part of it's mechanics. And obviously those two things are not distinct. They affect one another as well. So Y2K is my, is also to, to me an ability to say like, this is something functional and complete and I can Mm -hmm. move away from it and continue to be inspired by it without needing to, dig really further into it and Mm -hmm. allow for that sort of obsessive design that I can tend to do. So let people 
it, it's almost to go back with the, the cooking in the restaurant. Like I got the appetizers out now, please. Like I'm going to go to town preparing the most delicate entree possible, but I didn't yeah. want to leave you hungry. So like, yeah, you got something now. Hopefully you trust me well enough to let me do the, the star attraction here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Restaurant analogy is good. Someone can have that. Yeah. That's copyright free. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you think about like, cause you, you had mentioned sort of at the top of talking about Y2K that you're sort of resistant against the idea of like a, a, a quick start. Does that sort of conjecture around like a quick start being something you quickly start with versus like a taste of core rule book? stuff so, like why why are you sort of resistant to quick starts and what do you think about that like should they be something that is quick startable <laughs> i think so much of that i guess i keep saying the word resistant i don't hate a quick start but i think sure. as a player it just doesn't compel me enough to mm-hmm. want to play it without it it almost has a degrading quality to it right like Calling it a quick start implies it's not the game mm. in some sort of philosophical way, you know, like this is incomplete. Mm-hmm. And me as a player, I go, why would I play something incomplete when I have mm-hmm. all of these all of these options for something complete? Even if that thing is appealing to me, I would rather personally just wait to have the real thing. But mm-hmm. I am lucky that I have a group of players in my community that are down to play whatever. So we can jump between systems and try a bunch of stuff out. And I'm also privileged that I can collect these books as art objects and air quotes research for, for my (laughs) own design without necessarily needing them to be play items, right? Like I can justify buying a book and never playing it. So Mm -hmm. the notion, I think a quick start is specifically functional for players who are pickier than I am. And Mm -hmm. that is a great group of people. You know, that's like a, (laughs) that's a lot of people and it serves an important function in gaming, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't appeal to me personally. And I think to, to sort of put a nice bow on it, what we were talking about earlier in the last year of what I've learned is I'm making stuff for me and I'm excited that other people care. And uh-huh. I wouldn't make a quick start for one of my games because I don't play quick starts for other games. So mm-hmm. making it something that is simultaneously functional and also enticing, but able to stand alone was really my goal here of, you could play Y2K for free, enjoy it, and still not pick up Cyber Metal, and that's fine mm-hmm. because they are different experiences. But the goal here as me as a designer and a marketer is like to give you enough to know that this is my jam and I'm going to treat you well when we get to the real thing, air quotes, real thing. I do think Y2K is a real thing. And that's also I'm yeah. like tripping over my language a little bit with the way I talk about it. Because again, I think a quick start can be diminutive and I don't want to be diminutive in the way that I treat Y2K. But yeah, to, to sum that up, Y2K is functional for me as both a setting preview and a game preview that 
if that's all it was, if my campaign manages to not fund and I just have released a cool free standalone game, that's not a loss. That's still kind of cool. So I I think it functions well as its own thing. I, I super agree with you. I definitely am, am on the side of like, a quote-unquote quick start does feel detractive in some ways because, I mean, for me, I've been a gamer that has been like, ooh, this is the quick start, this is cool, now I want the whole... Like, I'm the consumer that, like, is enticed by, like, getting the taste of the quick start then leading to the bigger thing that has worked on me. <laughs> <laughs> but I I do agree that a quick start should be, as a designer, as a, as, as a, as a designer as well, or thinking about design, I... Think that it should be able to stand on its own, and like if you never were interested in the secondary product, that shouldn't take away from quote unquote quick start. It shouldn't feel like a an incomplete thing. It should be something that you can engage with again and again for an, an amount of times that seems feasible at your table. I do, and Y two K has enough there to sort of like potentially go indefinitely. There are some quick starts that don't have that sort of legacy built into them. I think after like, I don't know, the third time you play like Fandelver for D and D it's, and you have like only the basic options. You sort of like get hungry for something else or a little bit more. I don't know. That's just me. I don't think they're all created equal, but Y2K is doing some really cool stuff here. And I think it's changed kind of what like, I like prequel game. Prequel game is cool. I think it works for a definitely a tight end setting as well. I think that's a cool like uh, buzzword, buzzword genre right. sort of thing. Yeah, I but, think yeah. prequel and demo and quick start all kind of exist in the same thesaurus, right? But mm-hmm. they, especially in gaming, have different connotations. One of the other things that really led me down this path was thinking of if receive like when I first bought my PlayStation or PlayStation two and getting a demo disc that had, you know, like one level from four different games or something, just how cool that was. And that definitely led me like playing the first level of Parappa the rapper so many times (laughs) that I had to get the real game. Dude, (laughs) What a deep cut. (laughs) Same though. Um, Yeah. That's specifically a memory that, ties into me wanting to make it or, or label it as a demo. Like it, it hooks you, right? Like if you like Parappa the rapper and you do the onion rap or whatever, like, you know, you're going to enjoy the rest of that game and it's an easy decision to buy it. And it's predecessor or successor. I'm Jammer Lammy as well. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought about that one in a very long time. I am a rhythm game freak. Me too. I mean, I play bass in real life. So like, I love a rhythm game. I've actually been thinking about picking up the bass. So there's that. They translate relatively well. I have more than I think a guitar would, but yeah, we're, a, this is a far tangent. I think. <laughs> far far reaching zone two tangent we gotta stay in zone zero and so with that and you know it, like you mentioned it has this roll under d100 mechanic built into it and you also use a lot of double duty sort of things like look at your tens dice to decide like this this sort of effect yeah or fallout or something like that and you did a 2d6 tech jam pack 
a couple months ago or like a couple quarters ago. It was a while ago. Yeah, it was what, almost a year, it? I think. Oh, geez. Yeah. But yeah, you did sort of like you talked about having Dice do double duty. And we've also had John Geary on the show for their game Sledgehammer, where the D100 also does double duty, where the uh, the one's dice decides your damage if you hit on a roll, which is really fascinating. So yeah, it's, I think you, it's, you have some excellent like double duty dice mechanics in here as as well. It's funny you uh, mention it because it does derive from my 2D6 tech pack and yeah i thought so yeah because so in 2d6 or like the the theory here is most pbta games have you roll 2d6 and add them together and that's your value but you each each of them also has its own distinct value that you're ignoring and Mm -hmm. this also comes back to like i don't know if you ever played D with someone who would roll their damage die at the same time as their attack die because it's me. I'm that yeah <laughs> because it yeah. saves time even though you're talking about like a minuscule amount of time but it's a cool like power game thing like when someone does that you go oh this person knows how to play this game i like that feeling because so much of game design is curating a feeling right of like monopoly is about holding a bunch of cash money in your hand so the idea here that you're rolling to succeed or fail and also determine if that's a partial like so there's a system called fallout which if you get a one to three things are good if you get a four to seven things get a little weird and if you get an eight or higher things get bad so it's to me this was randomizing the position position and effect system from blades in the dark Mm-hmm. and having it be a consequence of your role instead of a pretense of your role. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you have one of your die do that. And then the other one is how much damage you either incur by failing or do by succeeding. So interesting. And because That's it's good. a role under system, say you have 50% to hit you're like your skill to hit is 50 or whatever. So if you roll a 19, that's great. You succeed. You have one die that's very low and one that's very high. And now you as a player have a tough decision to make of do you do, or that's a bad example, because in that case you would do nine damage and you would have one fallout. So that's like a great roll. But say you rolled like a, a 46 so now you can either do six damage and now oh, that's another bad example. A 48, <laughs> a 48. <laughs> that's a good one. 48 yeah. because one, it's really approaching your skill threshold. So if you rolled much higher, you would have failed, but you can mm. either do four damage and have things get much worse. Oh man, I'm doing a bad job of trying to pitch this. <laughs> no, you're, doing, you're doing great. If, if I can like, like try for alley oop here. So basically what you're saying, which is really cool. I've t- I personally totally understand what you're saying yeah. here. And I love exactly what you've done, but you, you essentially get to pick you. You're presented a set of two choices of picking your position and your effect. You can either like, you can run a risk of the dice coming out where you get both a great option and a bad option, depending on what you're choosing like maybe 89 or or 79 or something like that right like you can do right. nine damage failure is a more interesting choice like fa- failure 
allows that decision to become more difficult because you're choosing between damage and fallout with higher numbers. Yes. yes. But that's yeah. that's part of it too. Like obviously when you fail, things will get worse. And when you succeed, it's less likely that things get worse. And that's part of it. But rather than that being dictated to you specifically by the game master, you do get some say in it only mm-hmm. in so far as the dice tell you two options. And so rather than it being a negotiation as it is in blades in the dark, this is sort of a rock and a hard place for you to decide mm-hmm. on your own, yeah. given the dice results. And that is the most compelling part to me is it's, and the fact that again, I'm trying to streamline it. So it's not like roll to succeed and then roll for fallout. It's one role that you're parsing. Those two philosophies led to this mechanic that I think is really cool and novel and fun to play with that it offers you tough choices that you as the player make alone while also being relatively swift. I think in my opinion, it's a little, it's, it's more streamlined than having it become a conversation in a forge in the dark style game, because you only really have two options. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and as a, as my personal bias, I don't really love like difficulty discussion Right, um, I'm that like way as well. Between GM and player, because it 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 is it's just so different. It's so nuanced between like the people you're playing with and the way the game is designed doesn't really elicit like all the possible combinations. And like my DC twelve is different from your DC twelve. So while DC twelve for me might be like breaking this gate, your DC twelve might be like, oh, that's only hard in context of like. I don't know, uh, getting past the draft. I don't know. This is like, it can be so different. And position effect is definitely one of those conversation things where like, oh, you're trying to use skirmish to fight the guy. That feels like risky limited to me. And then the other person goes, oh, well, like, why is it limited? Uh, Because of X, Y, Z. Oh, well then, okay, I'll switch my action. And like that, like really starts to like, that adds up over time, right? And it takes you out. Because you're no no longer engaging with, the setting, which is to me the most novel part of cyber metal. I mean, I, to me, but like, I think to most people, it's a weird setting. It's cool. And that's why you're mm-hmm. picking it up, but mm-hmm. you want to stay in there. So yeah, when you start getting into mechanical discussion, which has its place in games and is totally good and appropriate in the right play group, like you said, I don't want that. I want you to stay in pentagram city in your brain. So like rather than, have those conversations you can kind of have it in your head very briefly of saying like one of these is damage and one of these is fallout if this then that like because so much of these mechanical conversations are like logical trains right like you want to do the most effect without incurring the worst situation having it become a binary of x damage and y fallout or why damage and X fallout shortens that. And it's not a conversation. It's just for you to decide because there is also this sort of theme in the game of the world doesn't care about you, right? Like this is not, despite how gonzo and weird the setting is, it's not terribly escapist because it is your regular folks in a world that kind of sucks. And guess what? So are we. And that's, cool to me because that's part of the theme of the game is just like 
doing what you can to survive? And is it better to be selfish or altruistic? And like, how do those things affect the world around you? But making that a internal decision rather than a group decision or GM conversation or whatever is to me amplifying the main theme of the game, which is like, what do you care about? Mm -hmm. And I think again, when we talking about how mechanics and setting and mechanics and themes go together, this one is less explicit. This doesn't feel as obvious as something like Necronautilus, which on its face is telling you this die roll is about what you like, what you remember and what you're able to do and who you are as a person. This is a little more buried, but the theme is still there of like, what's important to you as an individual. Mm -hmm. And is, is the group, the thing, you know, like, cause there is that sort of player instinct to think about your party because you're playing a game with your friends, but cyber metal doesn't necessarily, I wouldn't say it encourages or discourages that behavior because you can just be selfish and I don't think being selfish is inherently wrong, but obviously there are circumstances where being selfish is worse than being uh, group minded or whatever. So the cyber metal is in disguise, this sort of moral philosophy question. Uh, yeah. And I think the die roll system of choosing how, like, if you incur less damage to yourself, but make the situation worse for the group, mm. that's an interesting decision that reflects on your character's moral philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's so fascinating there. I guess the mechanical term would be dice allocation. Yeah. Maybe. But there was a, I think the podcast is called design games. And I, I think it, I could be wrong, but it's like Jeff Engelstein and someone else. But there's an episode where they talk about dice resolution mechanics and specifically one bit where they talk about, well, what if you pre-rolled everything and knew what you're getting into? So like they were arguing against how like in D&D, for example, you say, I'm going to attack the orc. Yeah. And then you roll a miss. And so now you're, you have to do this cognitive gymnastics with yourself of, oh, I guess I, I didn't attack the orc. Like you're doing this thing backwards of now you have to explain why the thing you were going to do doesn't work, but you were like, you were going to do it in your mind. And they were talking about how, what if you like pre-rolled? What if you just had like a bunch of pre-rolls that you did before a combat or whatever, and then just started picking dice to use in, in different moments. At some point you're going to be left with tough decisions because what if you started with all your good dice, but now you have, bad dice left for or low dice or whatever that means for the game left. So I love this, the combination of this fallout damage roll D 100 system, this double duty system in the sense that like, you're sort of doing that pre roll because you now have to make a follow up decision about how good do I do versus how much do I endanger the overall team, which is really, really awesome. Yeah. That's an interesting way to put it because to me, you're rolling like three values and, Mm -hmm. but you really are rolling one die roll and then allocating two of the results while the Mm -hmm. third is the explicit one, the dice, the dice decide one value and then you decide the other two. And that is an interesting decision to make. Yeah. Yeah, it really is for, for the game. 
I'm currently working on Umbral Dive, I was look, I don't have dice allocation, but to just to harp on like, there's so much more double duty that dice can do that I feel like is sort of not explored in at least for games that I've been exposed to minus this one. And also, you know, obviously sledgehammer as I've, as I've mentioned, but the forge in the dark, like basic D six system, like build the pool, roll the dice, look for the single highest result that determines your success and failure. I've been like tinkering with a thing because I'm doing sort of like a trad fantasy inspired thing where the more dice you have in your pool increases the effectiveness of your ability but it also determines what the enemies get to do. It like gives them action points. So your highest single result determines whether you succeed or not or how well you succeed, basically your effect. The lowest die result determines your enemies like sort of position effect position has always been like what can the enemy do to you and effect has been like what does the player can do to the enemy wow that sentence was i hope everyone understood what i said because i can't go backwards now but the lowest one gives them action points and then everything in between like if your dice pool gets bigger everything in between decides like a status effect thing it's like it's like a powered by the apocalypse thing if you do six or less that may not beat a enemy's like poison resistance. So you have to overcome an enemy's poison resistance with the middle dice. So single highest result is your effect. Lowest die result is their position. And any middle dice that you end up accumulating over the course of building your role determines additional effects or things like that, or like narrative dispositions for NPCs or something. So that's for anyone to listen to, to sort of examine as well that like we need to do some double duty stuff that is really cool. It goes beyond the roll ad system. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because Tales from the Loop was an RPG I really love that uses D6 pools. And similarly, you only want the single highest one. And if you have additional successes, you can do other stuff. But And there is so much to the just psychology of rolling eight dice. Like that feels awesome. But yeah six or seven of those you're probably not even looking at or regarding in any way. And it almost, it does kind of feel wasteful, not obviously like in any kind of real way, you know, you're not wasting energy by rolling them. And it's just like, you have all this data that's being neglected. It makes Mm -hmm. the most sense in a sort of random way or, or, you know, a game designy kind of, you want your roles to change the circumstance or arguably change Mm -hmm. the world that you're in to use as much of that as you can to impact those changes. So I think that's a really novel, especially like you said, with a, with a dice pool, because the number of dice used can vary and that's compelling too. Cause with those dice pool games, you usually just want to roll as many as you can, but Mm -hmm. the idea that you might actually benefit from rolling only a couple because it, minimizes the chance of something worse happening gives you a interesting like psychological choice of increasing your own success odds at the cost of increasing the odds of a detriment. And at what point does it become not worth it or too risky or when do you pull back? And I think those decisions as a player are what make these compelling games to play. You know, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I love story games and I, I primarily focus on making story games, but this, but cyber metal is more trad game and Y2K as well, which I still enjoy making and do, but just, I guess, less, less frequently. But yeah, those decisions are what makes trad games compelling to me 
because in a story yeah. game, you just say it is one way or it is the other way. And in a more hyper trad game, like a D and D or a Pathfinder or something, the dice tell you it is one way or it is the other way. And then I think we're exploring a really interesting middle ground where that becomes a choice that you're not in entirely in control of, but you still get to yeah. use in a, your own desired fashion. And so it, it does kind of scratch this itch in between the two to me of interesting decisions that you as a player get to make that are going to change the world that the dice influence you without dictating specifically exactly what is true. Yeah. It's the offering. It's like the game has offered these choices to you. You may now pick from these instead of like the game has decided or you have decided you sort of have like worked together. Yeah. I think that's interesting. And I think even, yeah, the way that you put that the game being almost an autonomous entity in that conversation, right? The -hmm. game master, the other players and the game itself are all having this conversation. (laughs) It's alive. It is, and it, it affects the decisions that you make and the decisions that you're able to make. That's what rules are. So I think that's really interesting and compelling and something a lot of designers, uh, players definitely probably don't think about this, but I think some designers do and more designers could, that your game mm-hmm. is part of this conversation. The rules that you yeah. write, the random tables, the dice themselves or the cards or whatever systems you're using – are part of the conversation because you always read the what is an rpg it's a conversation between players to tell a story but one of those players is the game itself yes i agree it's a weird sort of philosophical stretch to get there but (laughs) the game is communicating with you and i think that's fascinating and i think that's I'm definitely on a spiral now, but one of the, (laughs) one of the coolest things of being a game designer is I'm having in this conversation with the players without being there. I'm programming Mm -hmm. almost my own behavior. So something like ether operations where I can say, you know, the bone manipulator enters the meat realm and rolls D six. I'm like, that's a cool sentence that I made up and I'm not physically saying it with my mouth, but the text of the game is saying it. And it is affecting the way that you interact with it. And that's super cool. I become this sort of ghostly conversation member in all of the conversations that are the games that are being played that I designed. The ghost AI. Yeah. <laughs> good. It's good. Um, I think sort of the last transition here, I want to give you an opportunity before we, before we close out the show here to talk a little bit more about cyber metal 2012 and sort of how is the, how's the Kickstarter experience like launch sort of gone for you so far and what can we look forward to uh, at the games? Like what is the pie in the sky completion version of, of cyber metal 2012? Yeah. So one interesting thing I'll note firstly is that the game's actually not on Kickstarter it's on GameFound. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, it's totally yes, okay because I think this is a new part of the conversation that people haven't really said before. You know, like Tony Vicinda's, uh campaign for Down We Go was the only other role-playing game. Or I, there was also Vast Grimm, that sort of sci-fi yeah. Morkborg hack. But GameFound is not necessarily a role-playing game platform. And so it's a new thing to talk about. But anyway, and you know, 
I'm resisting becoming an advocate or a poster child for this format. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are curious. And once my campaign is over, I'll have more insight on how that is. But effectively, GameFound is exactly like Kickstarter. It's just different. It's just not Kickstarter. It's something else. Woo! Uh, every time I talk about it, I feel like I'm walking into land, a landmine. Like, no, no, no. It's per, first of all, it's my fault for going oh, no. on autopilot <laughs> and saying Kickstarter to start. So I open the doors here and only feel free to engage with as much as you feel comfortable. Yeah. And you know, all on, on this show, I make it important that every version is, heard and whether a listener agrees or disagrees with something is on the listener. It's not on you. It's not on me. And we just, we talk about it. Like they the have the conversation is part of why the show exists. Right. So don't feel uh, afraid. Like there's any judgment coming from my end. No, totally. I guess I'll summate it and say, you know, like I'm wary of game found and I'm on it. And I think people are kind of holding it on a pedestal as a Kickstarter alternative. And I think, mm-hmm. There's still a lot of time and other factors that will determine whether that is true or not. So I think people should just yellow light it instead of green light it. Sure. But anyway, so I'm crowdfunding Cyber Metal and it's going okay. It's certainly not doing what I wanted it to do, truthfully, but it's also not a failure despite what I said to crying in the coffee shop bathroom just two days ago. And it is, you know, like I said, all of me in a project, it is weird graphics that I'm drawing with ink on paper and scanning in, which to me was a funny subversion of cyberpunk aesthetic of everything being digital and neon. Like I'm doing traditional media art for it. Yeah. And which is also like so satisfying to me to get back to kind of experimental media, like using charcoal for the first time in 12 years and getting ink just all over the desk and really thriving in this artsy mess. And, you know, yeah, it's heavy metal. There's demons, there's Satan, there's rat people, there's roach people. It's, it's awesome and weird, but the game the, the campaign is also for Y2K in print, so you can get Y2K as a zine, and also a third book called SSD, which stands for Symbolic Skin Designs. There's a system in Cyber Metal where your character has a mark, and you roll D10 to figure out what the mark is, if it's a tattoo, or if it's a brand, or a scar, or a birthmark, or whatever. But mm-hmm. I got started getting carried away with that artwork and expanded it into a separate book. So SSD is over... 100 tattoo designs because i also since i was a teenager i always wanted to be a tattooer and i just sort of didn't pursue it in a serious way so but i still paint tattoo flash so there's over 100 pieces of cyber metal tattoo flash in this standalone book wow so also you know like if the game isn't for you but you like the art there is an art only book and that's really interesting to me too. And I've got t-shirts and pins and stickers and temporary tattoos. Like if you wanted to actually wear some of the tattoos from the book, it's a cool option. The campaign is to fund all of that. The book, my, my general philosophy is the book is always going to be its complete version. I don't do stretch goals necessarily to 
change the content of the book itself. Sometimes I'll use the funding and do something nice like adding spot foil to the cover that is not necessarily a public facing stretch goal, but I just decide it's worth doing with some of the budget. Mm -hmm. But so cyber metal core book is going to be this hardcover book with all of the character creation, all the 30 something software applications and eight operating systems, which are like your subclass, your hardware, which is your species. There's tons of setting stuff. Obviously I'm going with this alternate timeline. So there's a lot to explain. So, you know, you'll have a whole spread on why there's no money and people trade blood instead. (laughs) And then with that, here are the mechanics for spending and debting and owing blood in a debt system. Jesus. Or, you know, there's adventure stuff. Like one of the functions of the game is there's this sort of citywide competition that's ever going for people to make viral video footage. So this comes from like old competitive D and D modules where like, if you investigate the lion statue, you get five points or whatever you can make lists of tasks. And some of them are, you know, mundane, like take a trip through the sewers for five points, like a low amount of points or, you know, behead a bad fucker. And, then that's, you know, 25 points or something. And then you have these like weekly standings, which also just as a sort of side note, that's compelling to me is allows for seasons in the way that a game like Fortnite or something would of like, yeah. Oh, this July we're celebrating our independence from America. Pentagram city as this autonomous nation. So we're doing a special video nasty competition that is about explosives. Like you can do little, modules that are based on seasonal events and that's really cool to me Mm -hmm. but yeah the core book has all that the core book has factions and how faction play works and how it affects the city there's tons of character stuff there's tons of setting stuff lore stuff and then obviously tons of artwork and weird illustrations and ink and texture and wildness so it will be like a compelling art object as well so that's the campaign. The campaign's really for the core book because Y2K is done and SSD will be done by the time the campaign's over because Flash is sort of something I draw in my downtime. So it's coming along really fast. The core book creation and completion is what the camp- campaign is funding. But at this point, I'm going to do it regardless. So <laughs> it it rules and it's going to be awesome. I mentioned I'm going to drop some stretch goals, but there's really only two. One is so a thing I haven't shown off yet and I really ought to is this sort of modular character sheet system mm-hmm. where you have a half letter piece of paper that's your character sheet. But I mentioned you can swap your application software at different computers. That is mm-hmm. also a half letter piece of paper, but yep. but you fold it in such a way that it basically like plugs in like a Nintendo cartridge to your character sheet. And then when you swap applications, you just fold the paper in a different way and and put it back there. So there's this cool, like one fourth of your character sheet is this little like cartridge plugin. But one of the stretch goals I'm going to do is make that a playing card deck. So if you didn't want to print out the sheets and fold them in that way, you could just have cards, which each of which each of the software options on it and just lay those down on top. So it's a stretch goal, but it'll also be an add-on. So like if we unlock it, 
then you can pay like 10 bucks or whatever to get the deck. And the other goal is doubling the um, number of hardware. So I have in the core game, you can play as a demon, a human, a vermin, or a husk, which is a corpse with digital programming in its mind. So Mm -hmm. effectively a walking computer program and husks bodies deteriorate because their corpses, you know, fall apart. Mm -hmm. So you have to, find or create new corpses to inhabit as you play. And those are all cool. And I wrote each of those and those are part of the core game, but I'm going to have some folks help me out. I asked Viditia Valetti to write vampires as one of the hardware. Seb Pines is going to do ghosts, which in the setting are called echoes because so much of it is based on like sound manipulation and frequency mm-hmm. manipulation. And ooh, what else have I got? Oh, Spencer Campbell's going to write birds, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> And the fourth new hardware option will be angels. Since the game is very demonic in nature, it asks, to me at least, interesting questions about faith systems in the face of that. Mm -hmm. Like if demons are real, then heaven must be real. But like also if they didn't do anything, then like maybe not. And that's Mm -hmm. an interesting like sort of philosophical setting thing that goes unanswered. But the idea that there are these like, spiritual beings that i think will be called angels whether that's what they are or not that'll be the the fourth expansion hardware and the eighth overall hardware which mm-hmm. makes like thousands of i think it squares the number of character options that are available jeez cuz each hardware will also come with a pack of software so going mm-hmm. from four hardware and 32 software to eight hardware and 64 software. Um, yeah. You, you just suddenly your character <laughs> options have exploded and yeah. <laughs> and that's not even including the, the eight operating system, like subclasses too. So you're looking at a lot of options. Yeah. And that's, and that's the only stretch goal beyond that. I'll just pay my contributors more and pay myself more. I mentioned earlier that, going full time was sort of a decision that was made for me rather than a decision I made. It's almost like I rolled a mixed success and I had to allocate one of the dice <laughs> to my work. Full circle, maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm doing full-time game design as a result of the ongoing quarantine and the fact that I can't do live music touring and traveling. So this game is also truthfully my sole source of income for the next quarter at least probably more like six months so rather than sort of blowing it out with stretch goals and i think you know i already offer so much up front in terms of merch add-ons and how complete this book is especially compared to a lot of the other books i've written that you know i deserve a little bit too so beyond those funding goals everything else just goes back into the project and the people who make it Amazing. If that card deck doesn't have a floppy disk as the back card, <laughs> I'll be upset. Truly. No, that's that all sounds super amazing. It sounds like there's a lot to chew on for the game. Do you what is the link for Cyber Metal 2012 if people are interested in uh donating? Yeah, it's funding at pentagram.city. Pentagram dot city. I mean 
I'm, I'm already, I'm already pulling it up. So with that, I think that's going to lead us into the, the end of the show here. Adam, I want to thank you so much for being on here and being vulnerable in some cases and really getting into like, you know, philosophical design nitty gritty with me. Would you just once again, give an outro of who you are, where people can connect with you and, and get access to your stuff. All of these links that Adam is about to provide will be down in the show notes for your access listeners. My website where you can get almost all of my games in print. Sorry, I dropped I dropped the eraser I'm fidgeting with. I'm going to do a clean take. <laughs> You're good. It's live. My website where you can get all of my games in print is worldchamp.io. You can also get digital versions of those games at worldchampgameco.itch.io. Cyber Metal 2012 is at pentagram.city. I'm on Twitter at WCGameCo. And I'm also on Patreon as world champ game co it's sort of on pause as i focus on cyber metal but that's where you're going to get my like monthly well what were monthly (laughs) and now are on pause (laughs) zine games and smaller format games amazing thank you everyone for being with us today i hope that you learned a lot listening to adam because i know i certainly did and we will be here next time Say bye to the people, Adam. Bye to the people, Adam. Hey there, listeners. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Adam and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes for getting in touch with Adam and other content with similar topics. Support Jeremy and the DYD podcast by reviewing the show, joining the community Discord server, and donating either on Patreon or Ko-fi. Thanks again for listening, and remember that design is a marathon, so enjoy the journey and have a great day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.